Bibles to 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 10. Only three verses for our consideration this evening. 2 Timothy 2, 8 through 10. A sermon title that perhaps would have piqued your interest a little bit, I hope. It's a quote from Martin Luther that we'll get to um, a little partway through the message. And we'll find that it's actually a very scriptural and biblical uh, allusion that Martin Luther was making as we read the words of the Apostle Paul to Timothy. Throughout the history of the church, there's been a great tradition of writing letters from prison. Throughout the history of the church, those who preach the gospel have often found themselves persecuted, incarcerated, because of that precise reason, following Jesus, preaching the word of God, gathering together in churches, doing ministry in Jesus' name. And so there are, of course, examples of this that maybe you're aware of. There are certainly are hundreds of thousands of examples of it happening right now in the church throughout the world. John Bunyan wrote The Pilgrim's Progress while he was imprisoned in England in the mid-1600s. Why was he imprisoned? He was preaching the gospel. More recently, Martin Luther King Jr. was imprisoned for um, working towards civil rights for black Americans and famously wrote his letter from a Birmingham jail, which I commend to you for your consideration, quoting scripture, calling people to uh, to come on, on board with his, his vision for civil rights for all Americans, regarded, regardless of the color of their skin. And all of this started with the Apostle Paul, who often wrote from prison. Pastor Zach and I just finished preaching through the book of Acts, where we heard about all the times that Paul was captured and kept in jail. He was arrested often. He was beaten up. He was thrown in in jail, at times miraculously released, at other times was incarcerated for years. And so we could ask, how did he respond to this unjust treatment? He was doing what was good. He was loving his neighbor. He was serving Christ. And yet he was thrown in jail. How did he react to this sad thing happening? Well, we have a mountain of evidence that answers that question of how Paul reacted because he wrote several of his letters from prison. And so we get a really good sense for um, his attitude and his faith during those times where he was in jail. The letters of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, and 2 Timothy were all written while Paul was in jail. Five letters. And some of the greatest letters that have ever been written, some of the greatest work that's ever been done in in literature, in in the history of the world, was written from a man who was in jail. So, tonight we read Paul's theology of his ministry from prison. And this will be followed by a story of Martin Luther, who was was held for a while uh, and kept in hiding. Uh, Having already prayed, let's, let's look right to our text, 2 Timothy 2. 8 through 10. Paul says to Timothy, this young pastor, and to his church in Ephesus, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, 
bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we died with him, we also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here in this letter, Paul says that he is, is bound with chains as a criminal, that he, is, he has been captured, he's been arrested, he's been imprisoned. But he contrasts that right away by saying, although I am bound with chains, the word of God is not. This letter of 2 Timothy was likely the last work of Paul to be included in Scripture. He gives that great passage at the end of 2 Timothy. He's run the race. He's fought the good fight. And there is in store for him now the crown, the reward for those who faithfully serve Jesus in Christ's power. And so you would think that it could be a time of discouragement for Paul as he is isolated from these churches he wants to go visit, these pastors who he wants to pour his life into. He wants to teach them. He wants to help them. He's got so much more to do, and he's bound in jail. And we find a great summary of Paul's attitude and his teaching from the Lutheran commentator H.D.M. Spence in his commentary on this letter of 2 Timothy. He summarizes or maybe gives a paraphrase of what Paul is teaching here with um, some stirring prose, saying from Paul's perspective, though they bind me with an iron chain, they cannot bind the gospel. While I am here, shut up in prison, the word of God preached by a thousand tongues is giving life and liberty to myriads of my brethren of the human race. The tyrant can silence my voice and confine it within the walls of my dungeon, But all the while, the sound of the gospel is going through all the earth. It's saving words to the ends of the world. And and I therein rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. And not all the legions of Rome can take this joy from me. So Paul is hopeful. Paul is focused. Paul continues seeking Christ serving Jesus, writing letters, doing whatever he can do to fulfill the call that Christ placed on him. Now, Paul does not remain hopeful in prison because of sheer willpower. Some people would look at this situation and they would say, wow, what sort of motivational talk or idea did he hold on to to help him get through these difficult moments? He said, he said what he's holding on to, this belief that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. That's exactly where we started in verse 8. He's calling Timothy to remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead because that's how Paul is enduring in his ministry. He's remembering Jesus Christ risen from the dead. He says there he's suffering for Jesus' sake and for Jesus' glory. He's in prison for the benefit of the elect. 
that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ. And so he has uh, a vision for continuing in ministry that his incarceration cannot ruin. To the Philippians, he, he would write um, earlier in his ministry, I count everything as loss. All of the, the good things that I have experienced and achieved in this life, it's all loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So if you consider knowing Christ as the goal of your life, then you will have perseverance in your uh, following of Jesus. If you consider knowing Jesus, serving Jesus, if you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, your service of Jesus will continue through those difficult moments in your life. We see this with the Apostle Paul. We've seen this all throughout church history. It's so often the case that those who give up on being a part of a church, those who give up on the Christian faith have, have never done so because Christ has been unfaithful, but because they've taken their eyes off Jesus. They have forgotten Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. And so those who remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, and, and the, the power that, that he fills us with through his Spirit, which is at work in us, those who remember what God has promised to do through the church, those are the ones who continue. Those are the ones who find ways to serve no matter where they are. Rather than the word of God being bound by chains, imprisonment, difficult circumstances, it becomes even more powerful and applicable and real during those times of struggle. As stated earlier, this isn't just about something happening during Bible times. This has been proven to be true in the history of the church. That where the saints are focused on Christ, where we remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, even when the Christian is bound with chains, we'll see that the word of God is not. While Martin Luther was bound in the Wartburg Castle in the year 1521, the word of God was still living and active through his ministry, and that was spreading throughout the whole world. Martin Luther's story is very similar to the Apostle Paul in many ways, and I want to share with you just a little snippet of the life of Martin Luther um, based on some of our travels this past summer during my sabbatical. Throughout Martin Luther's life, he had choices to make, and that choice was often for Martin Luther should I stand for the truth or should I duck my head and go with the status quo and go with the flow of culture? Martin Luther was a bold, often very provocative person and he so often made the choice to stand up for Jesus, to stand up for the truth and he paid very dearly for making that stand often. So he could have kept his head down, could have maintained his own comfort by ignoring the call of God's word on him, but chose to point people to the scriptures and to Jesus instead. So, of course, many of you would remember from history class or from church, um, or maybe even learning about the Reformation, where on 
October 31 of 1517, Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. And when he did so, he was teaching that the Pope and many of the official doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church were unbiblical and must be reformed. They must be corrected. They must be, uh, these false teachings must be um, abolished. And so after this moment, he endured various forms of persecution and, and struggle. He continued in that opposition of those false teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, and this culminated in what is now called the Diet of Worms, or the Diet of Worms, which is a church trial that was called to denounce Luther, but not just him particularly, but this reformation that was starting, that happened in 1521. So only four years after Martin Luther's 95 Theses were nailed to the door of the church, this word spread through, thanks to the printing press, and thanks to many people who were sympathetic to Martin Luther's teaching, and this explosion of of dissension was happening among Roman Catholics. So the Pope recognized he needs to call a, a council, to call a trial um, that essentially would, would put Martin Luther on the stand, even personally. So it was at the Diet of Worms where Martin Luther was given a chance to recant his, his writing and his teaching. What he was teaching was that salvation comes by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, and that in order to know the, the real path of salvation and the real measure for doctrine, we must seek the scriptures, which at times will oppose the current teaching in that day of the Roman Catholic Church. And so Martin Luther was, it was sort of read, his, um, read back to him what he was teaching, and, and they put him up on the, the stand, so to speak, and they said, do you recant this teaching? And it was there that he gave the, the famous line, here I stand, I can do no other, God help me. And so he didn't recant, and this made him immediately vulnerable to vigilantes, people who would want to um, sort of be in the Pope's favor, and they could maybe do something pretty good in their own view by going and killing Martin Luther. In fact, from leaving that Diet of Worms, they probably would have been celebrated in the Roman Catholic Church for doing such a thing. And so on his way from the Diet of Worms, Martin Luther was kidnapped by his friends. Instead of being kidnapped by vigilantes who would seek to do him harm, he was kidnapped by his friends who brought him to the Wartburg Castle in May of 1521. And our family had the great privilege and the amazing experience of visiting that castle. There you can see our crew there. And right behind Lydia's head, uh, to the upper left there, is the part of the castle where Martin Luther lived for 10 months. And he, he lived there under the alias Junker Jorg, um, which means Knight George. <laughs> Junker Jorg is what they called him. And even the owner of that castle didn't know that Martin Luther was there right away um, because of how secretive this was. Um, and so it was there that he, he lived and we had a tour of this castle and uh, heard some stories of what happened while Martin Luther was living there. And he would get letters from some people who were, were in the know, um, didn't always know actually where he was when they were writing these letters, but the letters would, would come to him. And one of his friends asked him, what are you doing while you're holed up there, way up on that hill above Eisenach, Germany? 
His friend wondered, how are you spending your time? And Martin Luther responded, I'm fighting the devil with ink. I'm fighting the devil with ink. Now, I don't want to go too far into what that meant. Um, Subsequent generations concocted a story that is actually not a true story, that that meant that Luther would see the devil in his study and throw ink at the wall. That's actually not what Luther ever meant um, when he was fighting the devil with ink. But it's a, to me, it's, it's quite a zinger, isn't it? That, uh, fighting the devil with ink, that he is writing and continuing his ministry while he's hiding, that now he's called to write, to, in this case, translate the New Testament into German. And so he's fighting the devil with ink as he translates the Bible. He's fighting the devil with ink as he defends the scriptures against his critics. And he had many critics, and they were launching all kinds of attacks on Martin Luther. And there were some he didn't respond to, but some who were worth his time to respond to. And so he would respond from that building there. You could see Martin Luther's study, a portrait of Martin Luther, right above the desk where he wrote. You can see there's, maybe you can't see, but there's a tiny little ink bottle with a pen above it, and uh, it's a bit of a reference to uh, this quote that Martin Luther gave of fighting the devil with ink while he was hiding there. So here's the purpose of the story, that while Martin Luther was hidden away, while he was incarcerated in some respect, God's word remained active. God's word was not bound. That although Luther was prevented from going where he wanted to go, Although he was prevented from doing what he wanted to do, he endured all things for the sake of the elect, that they might gain salvation. I imagine Martin Luther arriving in that that room there, uh, being sequestered away, knowing that this this could last for a long time, for all he knew, could have lasted the rest of his life. But he's entering that room, I just imagine, just looking for anything he could get his hands on so that he might continue his work of teaching the truth, of spreading the gospel. And so he fought the devil with ink and pen and paper. And the old adage has proven true that the pen is mightier than the sword, isn't it? That Luther's work in translating the Bible um, really continues to be one of the greatest things that he ever did. And, And the Luther translation is still highly regarded, even in Germany to this day. So, some practical lessons for us from the Apostle Paul and from Martin Luther. First, it takes courage to believe the gospel. It takes courage to teach the gospel. Paul wrote in our passage, I'm suffering for the gospel bound with chains as a criminal. He said, I'm suffering for it. And then just after that, he said, I endure everything. For the sake of the elect. And by saying I endure everything, he means I endure all kinds of trials and temptations and attacks. And so, brothers and sisters, if the church is just a social club or just a community development organization, we will not endure everything for the sake of the elect. If the church is just this place we gather to learn some lessons and hear some nice stories, if the church becomes like just a social group, then we won't endure everything. We won't endure persecution. We'll, we'll give up the moment that there is any trial or any difficulty or any threat of persecution. But if the mission of the church 
is to point people to Jesus Christ for the sake of the elect, even being bound with chains as a criminal. If, if, the, if the mission of the church is, is truly the gospel and the furtherance of the kingdom of God, we will always find more work to do, always find new people to love, find more people to bring to the Lord. We will endure if that is the real mission of the church as it ought to be. So even as we hear these stories about Paul bound in chains and Martin Luther hiding away for 10 months with his threats to his life, we we might wonder, what would our church do? Will our church remain active during a time of difficulty? Not suggesting that this is going to happen next week or anything, but it's, it's a good thought exercise. What would happen for you, or how would I respond as a pastor, if there was some sort of direct opposition to preaching the Word of God, believing the Word of God? How would we respond? Would we be like Paul, who got to work writing letters from prison? And it's that work uh, that blesses us even still today, the letter of Ephesians. Aren't we so glad Paul continued his work while in prison? We have this amazing exposition as Pastor Zach preached from this past summer. Why? Because Paul continued his work while in prison. Martin Luther translated the Bible. He wasn't discouraged and down on himself and just obsessed with all the political distractions that were happening in his day. He arrives in the Wartburg Castle. He gets to work translating the Bible. Instead of seeing this as a terrible thing that's ruining his life, he sees it as an opportunity to finally just pause and write. Certainly that was the case also for John Bunyan writing his Pilgrim's Progress. And so when you face opposition, do you shut down? Do you become discouraged? Or do you find a way to serve Jesus through it? Do you persevere? Do you endure? There's a time for licking our wounds. There's a time for receiving support and care and encouragement. But brothers and sisters, there's also a time for getting to work, for standing for Jesus. There's a time for showing courage. You know, Even thinking back to the COVID-19 situations in the church, I just heard time and time again pastors complaining, complaining about how hard ministry was and how people weren't getting along like they thought they should be or how this is happening in the government or that's happening in, uh, even in the denomination, complaining, complaining, complaining and whining from ministers. What does Paul say? Remember Christ Jesus. Suffer for him. Focus on him. Remember people like Martin Luther who instead of whining and complaining got to work, endured through opposition. We'll sing after this message, stand up, stand up for Jesus. You know, part of the Christian life is standing up, is showing courage, is even teaching our kids to get some backbone. And I think that even in the history of the Christian Reformed Church, this has not often been encouraged. We are known as nice people. (laughs) It's a good thing to be known as a nice person. 
But even in the Christian Reformed Church, we can do a much better job calling to one another to courageous, countercultural faith in Jesus. So what will suffering look like for us? Um, it's unlikely that it will look for us like it did for Paul or Martin Luther, although that is possible, I suppose. Suffering for us, like just thinking of the week ahead for you, could take the form of serving the Lord instead of filling your schedule with whatever you want to do during the course of the week. And so to suffer in those small ways is to say, there's this stuff that I would like to do or this entertainment I'd like to consume or this plan that I'd like to accomplish and this thing that I'd I'd like to maybe go do, but I'm going to say no to that and do the greater thing in the kingdom of God. Compared to Paul and Luther, that is very mild, a mild form of suffering. But it's good to start small. It's good to start with, with little things and to even encourage our children to live in that kind of way where we'll say, there's this good thing that you could do, but we're going to do the better thing of um, X, Y, or Z, whatever that might look like in your family or in your life. And so the question that, that I want to ask us all is, Uh, even as a church, are we raising children who will regard the kingdom of God more highly than anything in this world? That's what enabled Paul and Martin Luther to continue in faith despite opposition. Are we raising children to regard the kingdom of God more highly than sports? To trust in Jesus more than seeking popularity? Are we raising another generation of kids who are obsessed with their appearance or with money or with possessions or great experiences or who are going to to be raised up with a courageous faith to serve the Lord no matter what? Now, those things aren't always in opposition to one another, like sports and popularity and entertainment can be certainly good things in moderation and, and in their place. But at times, the Christian is going to, to be given a choice to continue following Jesus or to get swept away with what the world says we should do? Will our children endure everything for the sake of the elect? Will they have courage to stand up for Jesus? And it will take courage. Believing and preaching the gospel will take courage in what the apostle also calls a wicked and depraved generation. It will take courage to love people who are difficult to love, to share the truth with people who don't want to hear it. It'll take courage even to to say to the coach, we're not doing that because we have a church thing on Wednesday or on Sunday night or something like that. It'll take courage to profess your Christian faith in in those kinds of practical ways. Those are small ways of suffering compared to what the Apostle Paul and Martin Luther endured. But we endure everything for the sake of the elect. A second application is the truth. God's word cannot be bound. God's word cannot be chained. So that's a description, but it's also a promise. The description is that is the truth about the word of God as it says in Isaiah 55, that that where God's word goes forth, it will always achieve the purpose for which it's sent. So God's word cannot be ruined, cannot be bound, cannot be um, contained. 
And it's also a, a, a promise to us that when we share God's word with wisdom, that it will have the effect for which it's sent. The scheme of the devil is to distract us from ministry. The scheme of the devil is to distract us from the kingdom of God by focusing us on worldly things. And there are many worldly things that could try to convince us that the word of God is not active, is not living, and is bound. You might be tempted to think, we're just a little church in Ripon. What difference would we really make? You might be tempted to think, the last time I shared the gospel, it just fell flat. The last time I, sh- I invited that person to church, they just thought I was crazy. I'm tempted to think I'm not eloquent enough to be an effective minister. I'm not eloquent like those TV preachers who seem to put things together so, so well and so powerfully. But God's word is not chained by any of that, but will achieve the purpose for which it's sent. It's not even chained by persecution. In fact, persecution, including imprisonment, have often had the opposite result, where, where there is persecution, we see the spread of the gospel rather than the destruction of it. And so this isn't just motivational talk, you know, sort, sort of thing that somebody would put on a t-shirt or on the plaque on the wall, but it's the truth. The, God, the word of God cannot be bound, cannot be chained, and that's been proven through times of persecution in the history of the church. It's been proven as individual Christians share the gospel and people see them living with faith. They see this hope, this self-control, this confidence in the Lord. And it's been proven so many times that where there is antagonism of those kinds of people, there are other people who are watching how the Christian will respond to that antagonism and that, that, um, that opposition. And they'll say, I want some of what that Christian has. That's one of the high points of the Pilgrim's Progress, isn't it? Where, where um, faithful, going into Vanity Fair, endures persecution, holds to the faith, and those who are in Vanity Fair see this thing happening, and one man leaves the city of destruction to go towards the city of, um, of God with Pilgrim after that, with, with Christian. And so we can see that imprisonment and persecution has drawn people towards the Lord and doing the exact opposite um, for which it was designed. Imprisonment was, has withdrawn many saints also from the busyness and demands on their time and enabled them to bless a wider audience through writing, as was the case for John Bunyan and, and Martin Luther. And so what man intends for evil, God can turn and use for amazing, powerful, lasting good. So it's unlikely that you're going to be discouraged by imprisonment or dramatic persecution, but what might discourage the Christian instead? What might discourage you that you need to to remember God's word is still true and not bound by, um, by any worldly means? I think the seemingly mundane and ordinary moments of each day could make it feel like we aren't doing much to share the gospel, that we aren't doing very much to fight the devil, like the, uh, Martin Luther said. Uh, he's fighting the devil with ink. It sounds so dramatic, and then we just compare that to our regular lives and say, oh boy, am I, am I fighting the devil with 
the things that I do and the things that I say and the work that I accomplish. Just as Paul and Martin Luther fought the devil with ink, we use everyday tasks to glorify God and to oppose the work of the devil. And so he fought the devil with ink, and some of you fight the devil with sack lunches and water that you bring to homeless people in Stockton. Where Paul and Martin Luther fought the devil with ink, you might fight the devil with a hug for somebody who is grieving and who needs care. Some in our congregation fight the devil in a memory care unit with a guitar and some old hymns. Or we fight the devil with ordinary water applied to the forehead of a baby. We fight the devil with bread and juice, ordinary kinds of things whereby we remember Christ has won a victory over Satan and we continue fighting the devil with those simple things reminding us of his sacrifice. Put more positively, that's the negative side, fighting the devil with all those things. Let's put it on the the positive side. We proclaim the Lord's death. We proclaim that Jesus is Savior and Lord with our words and with all of those regular everyday objects, a sack lunch, a guitar, um, a lesson plan that's executed well and that shows attention for children, Um, with a meal that a family shares around a table, with some water and some bread and some juice. Just as Martin Luther fought the devil with ink and we ought to share the gospel with our words, you might ask, what am I called to fight the devil with in the week ahead? What normal thing will God place in my hands to share the gospel, to show love to neighbors, and to see the furtherance of the kingdom of God? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.